That's all right. Cheers. Either way, that's good. <laughs> Hello again. I'll try not to put my microphone on mute this time. Um, we're working through First Thessalonians. It's my pleasure to be here and preaching tonight. So I'll pray and then we'll jump right into the passage we read. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you again for, uh, for the way that you've revealed yourself to us. We never could have found you if you didn't come to us. We pray that you open the word to our hearts tonight and open up our hearts to your word. And we ask this in the name of your son, Lord Jesus. Amen. So Paul's letters to the churches, they're, uh, they're an interesting study because Paul tends to spend the majority of the text addressing very specific problems with the church he's talking to. For those problems, we often find they're related to their time, and then we can extrapolate a sort of a principle out of that that can apply to anyone's time and anyone's lives. You find one ancient church has a problem with fast-talking philosophers winning people over away from the gospel with clever lines and personal charisma. We could say, who do we allow more authority in our lives than we really should? What TV personality or YouTube activist or political commentator or just charming friend do we allow to dictate what is important in our lives? Another church might have a problem with idols, and we could say, then, who is it that we idolize today? Or what is it that we idolize today? What do we put in the place of God that needs to either be lowered down or perhaps torn down? And this is how we find the timeless principles that are in these, these lessons and make time-bound advice relevant for our lives. But First Thessalonians, you might have noticed, uh, has a great big intro sequence before we get to any specific gripes about what the church is doing. And it'll be not until next week that Paul begins to address the problems that Thessalonians have specifically. You might have noticed over the past couple of weeks he's been quite, uh, quite pleased with them, fairly gushing about them, almost breathlessly praising them and what they've been doing and the way that God has blessed them. He's been saying how proud he is of them. He's been saying how he's hoping to see them again soon. Um, and we won't actually get into that, into that uh, instructive content until next week. But this passage... This tail end of Paul's introduction, it has a lot to say about the way that Paul sees his ministry, the overall story of the way that Paul sees his ministry. Like We hear a lot about how we need to love our neighbor and spread the gospel, and this is a picture of what that looks like. In case we ever get the wrong idea and we water it down at some point or lose the balance. So let's step through and see what it looks like from Paul's perspective. Starting again at verse 17. But brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing we made every effort to see you, for we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did, again and again. But Satan blocked our way. And this is some strong language. They were orphaned by being separated, and Paul suffered an intense longing to return to see them. He loves these people dearly enough that it's not too much to compare it to the loss of family or the division from family. He has a, a sort of a fatherly role over them. They're certainly brothers and sisters. He calls them such. But all his efforts to get back to the Thessalonian church, all his striving to be reunited with them, that's been thwarted by what he says is the work of Satan. Satan blocked our way. Now, he doesn't go into detail about what precisely he means by Satan blocked our way. The, uh, the again and again he mentioned makes it seem like it's more than one particular event or one particular imprisonment. But some consistent interruption um, in, in his efforts to get back to them has stopped him from returning to the people that he loves here. And he lays that blame at the devil's hooves. 
To me, it looks like Paul is urgently required in Athens to work the gospel in opposition to what Satan was doing there, and so he can't be spared to go back to Thessalonica. But one way or another, he's precluded from returning to them. And this is crushing to him because, as verses 19 to 20 tell us, for what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. Now, a crown for us has a, a sort of a connotation of, of a rulership. In the ancient world, it was more about victory than about authority. You were crowned with laurel wreaths if you won a race in, in an athletic games. Um, Roman soldiers would weave a grass crown for their general if they really admired him. That was a, a highly prized crown, even though it's only made of grass. It's honor and it's glory. And for Paul, because these people were brought to Christ as a result of his ministry and his willingness to speak the gospel, they are his crown and his hope and his joy before God. So on to chapter 3. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service, in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials, for you know quite well that we are destined for them. Now Paul is distressed at missing this church. He presumes they will be likely distressed missing him. And his imprisonment and his poor treatment at his hands, well, that's certainly going to bother them as well. But persecution, he reminds them, is part of the parcel. It's part of the plan. Jesus literally carried the cross of suffering and told his followers they must all pick up their cross and follow him. For some, that's a metaphor. For others, almost and sometimes perfectly literal. And in a previous passage, we saw that the, the Thessalonians were just starting to experience pressure from the Gentiles, like Paul had from his Jewish compatriots. That means they're doing it right. If you're doing it wrong, no one will care. If you're doing it right, then people will kick back. But it's certainly inconvenient. Not a lot of fun being put in jail and being separated from your people. And so Paul sends Timothy to check in to reassure these people that these trials are part of the, uh, part of the package of being a disciple of Christ. And so on from verse 4. In fact, when we were with you, we, were, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. But Timothy has just, come, has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you have always pleasant memories of us. And that you long to see us just as we long to see you. Thank God. Immature in the faith as they were, Timothy finds out that they have been remembering him, remembering the things they've heard. They've clung to that faith. They've lived it and they long to see Paul like he longs to see them. This is good. And in the later chapters, Paul will bail them up about some things that he thinks they are doing wrong. But the bonds of love and the spiritual fidelity are still there. They're still strong. They weren't just following the gospel because Paul was a nice presence and a good speaker. When he took the hands off, it didn't fall over. They're suffering for it and they're enduring it. This, Paul says, allows him to really live, to thank God for them and to pray for them. And he offers them such a prayer. Verses 7 through 13. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy 
we have in the presence of our God because of you. Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. And so that's the story of this portion of Scripture. That's the narrative we have here. Paul was afraid for his Thessalonian friends. He was reassured he can breathe again now that he knows they're okay. And he prays that God will amplify their love, the key to their relationship with each other and the people. And that through the strengthening of their hearts, that God will increase their holiness, their relationship with God. So in one sense, there's really nothing that remarkable about this passage. You can... Uh, you can chase some interesting Greek words down some uh, winding rabbit holes. But the thrust of this chapter really is the love of God and serving the gospel. And that shot through the Bible from cover to cover. But in another sense, this is a remarkable passage because it's distilled. It's the, almost the meta story of what Paul is talking about when he founds churches, when he loves people, and when he brings the gospel. It's a story that's repeated over and over again in the body of believers all through time and for each one of us. All mentors and disciples and parents will live out the role of Paul, hopeful for fruit in the lives of their mentees and disciples and children, agonizing about whether or not they will witness it themselves, exulting when it's proven worthwhile and impacting that they've really succeeded, that their own flaws weren't so sufficient to drag them down. And all mentees and disciples and children will live out the role of the Thessalonians in this passage. Or they will live out the role that Paul feared would be the case. The gospel penetrates their heart or they fend it off and go their own way. You can read Corinthians, for example, to see the way Paul's anxiety responds to a church drifting away from what they were taught and the pain that it caused him. And it's those two things that Paul prays for, love and holiness, that make the difference in all of this. They're Paul's best tools for discipling, and often enough, it went off the rails for even him. So if we're serious about our faith, and if we mean it when we say we want to spread the gospel and love our neighbor, then we should take some time to make sure we know what we're talking about. So what do we mean by love, and what do we mean by holiness? So what is love? Well, that's a straightforward question, just the one most frequently asked by every field of human expression and culture ever. Simple enough to answer then. Well, obviously, there's a couple of meanings of love. And the one we're dealing with here is obviously not the romantic capacity of love, although that's an interesting question and worth preaching on at some point. But often we talk about love, particularly in a Christian context, we have two definitions and we jump back and forth between them, depending on what we're discussing. Loving your neighbor, for example, when you're talking about your church family and the people you know, we mean the emotional bond, the ache to be near one another when you're apart, the sense that you're part of a greater whole, the kind of love that would compel you if it was required to lay down your life for someone. Jesus says there's no greater love than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. That's love, right? That's obviously love. It's deep. It's binding. 
It's the kind of thing Paul is describing in most of this passage. But then there's the other thing that we call love, the non-emotional behavioral love. Love is a verb, not a feeling kind of love. When you are loving your neighbor in respect to your fellow humans of all kinds, we mean the desire that such a person should flourish and become better than they are, and we are willing to make some kind of sacrifice to help that happen. You give up the price of a cup of coffee each week to sponsor a child through compassion, for example, as an act of love. Now, would you live on the street and sell everything you own to sponsor a thousand compassion children? No. No, you probably wouldn't. Do they need the money more than you? Yes. Will you do it? No. You are building a life for you and those close to you. They're the primary recipients of your care and all your resources. And that's how we're built. So this love does not look the same as the emotional love. And it, that kind of love may not even have an emotional component. You can reasonably say that someone who spends their time charitably, serving their community, but does not have an emotional bond with that community, they're still acting in a loving way. You could say they love their neighbor. And this is the way that we must love our enemies, surely, because you certainly don't love them in the emotional sense. You might desire what's best for them and sacrifice for it a little bit, even if they desire the worst for you, and they're willing to sacrifice to make that happen. But it's obvious you don't love your enemy in the same way you love your family. Or do you? Perhaps these are the same kind of love, but at different places on a spectrum. And that would make sense, because we have people in our lives whom we love more or less than others. In fact, we talk about them as being close or distant, as if they're on some kind of spectrum at which we are at the center. There's you at the core, and you love yourself, and you have to have really come to terms with that. You have to be someone that you are desiring to see flourish and succeed in the way God has designed you to succeed. If you don't, well, then you won't, and no, no, neither will anyone around you. But the next in closeness after yourself at that core there has to be your husband or your wife. You love them so much that you would die for them, and that's not a completely selfless love. In a very real sense, the boundary between who you are and who they are is a little bit blurred. Who you are is a great part of who they are and vice versa. And you can tell that because if you lost them, neither you or neither of you would be the same person anymore. And so you can be willing to die for them because that part of you that dies is less valuable than the part which would go on with them. And they can live knowing that at least the best part of you is with them. We use this language about people we lose, about our loved ones living on in our hearts, and we don't appreciate how real it is. And your kids are there too, secondary in love only to your spouse, only because the best thing you can do for them is love each other the most. And because one day the kids will grow up and leave home. But you guys won't. And parents who love each other most will feel the loneliness, but remember who they are together. Parents who love their kids more will have a much harder time. Then outside of that family, you have the, the less immediate family, the extended family, the friends. Would you die for them? Maybe the good ones? You'd certainly give up a kidney for them, maybe, or a pint of blood, certainly. Then you have work friends, and then work colleagues, and friends of friends, and Facebook friends, and the spectrum keeps moving further and further out. 
people you would do less and less for, but still kind of wish the best for. There's a spectrum of love that stretches all the way out to strangers, where it becomes a willingness to give up, say, a coffee a week to improve a distant stranger's life in some significant way. So when Paul prays for the Thessalonians that the Lord would make their love increase and overflow for each other and everyone else, he's asking God to bless them with an increased capacity at every point on this scale so that everyone is loved more. Now, this is not a blessing that people would love everyone equally. That would be crazy. And you couldn't and shouldn't love everyone equally. But that they'd love those strangers a bit more like acquaintances, those acquaintances a bit more like friends, those friends a bit more like family, those family a bit more like closer to how much they love their spouse and their spouse like they've never loved anyone before. Now, why is this important? Because it's the key to holiness. So what does Scripture mean by holiness? Well, fundamentally, holiness means to be different, to be set apart. The word implies set apart because it's better. In the way you put away the good plates for when someone special comes over. God is holy because he is not like other gods. The saints are holy because they are not like other people. And they're not like other people because they're more like Jesus. They've been sanctified. They've been made holy. The Holy Spirit has worked in them to polish out the dents and the sin left in them and restore them to what they should have been or something closer to it. It's a cosmic refurbishment. This is a lifelong work, and anyone following Jesus is working on it, and they'll be working on it until the day they die. No one quite knows how God is going to bridge the difference between how holy you are on the day you die and how holy you must be in his presence. But we trust he'll fill in the blanks when relevant. But Paul prays that the hearts of these people will be strengthened to make them blameless and holy. So how does he expect them to get there? Well, obviously by their love for each other and their devotion to God. The things he's proclaiming are their best aspects in this letter. Because we serve a God who is ultimately loving. He's three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, the borders of which are completely blurred into a Trinitarian whole. And he loves so purely and perfectly that they sent one of those persons, Jesus the Son, to tear away into the loneliness of mortality to die for people who were his enemies. And not just to die, but to be killed by those people. And it's that display of love and what it does to people who devote their lives to it that turns hearts back to God. It's the love between the members of a church which makes it possible for hearts to be strengthened and through fellowship and encouragement and teaching and serving to become more holy. All of these things produce holiness and love, which in turn produce holiness and love. There's a virtuous cycle. Now, this is both the attraction and the agony of living in the kingdom life because the closer a person is to you, the more you love them, the more it hurts when you have strife with them or when you disappoint them or when they leave. So when Paul prays that these guys will be more loving and when we pray that we'll be more loving, if we think that just sounds perfectly nice, well, think again, sunshine. Imagine loving everyone more. Imagine loving your brothers and sisters in the church so much that watching one of them leave was like watching your blood brother or sister leave. Imagine loving someone you're discipling so much that hearing that they've fallen away is like losing a child. 
They'll like loving a mentor so much that disappointing them is like breaking a parent's heart. This is going to hurt. Be careful what you pray for. And if you're living this kingdom life, all of that stuff will happen to you. Love is painful and uncertain and full of tears, but it's also so precious that God would die for it. That's the kind of life that God calls his church to have. Incredibly filled with joy and hope and waist deep in tears and suffering while we're here on this earth. And infinitely better than loneliness where no one can hurt you. So where can you become a little bit holier? Where can you act a little more Christ-like and different from the world? Is it something you're supposed to be doing that you already know about? A spiritual habit that you said you'd develop, a ministry you knew you should be part of? A mentor you should be engaging or a space in your life where you could be mentoring someone yourself? Don't overlook it again. Write it down. Do what you need to do. And you know what you need to do to make sure you don't forget it again. Declare in our prayer tonight that you will do this thing. You'll move a little closer to being that holy and blameless creature that you are to be before the throne of God. And how can you be a little more loving? How can you treat your family even better than you've been treating them? And strangers a little better than they'd expect to be treated by someone that they haven't met? How can you live out a life where your holiness invades someone else's life as an act of love? Is there a friend that you should be reconciling with that you haven't yet? Are you as connected to this church and the people of this church as you know that you should be? Don't let it go tonight. Do what you need to do to remind yourself and make that move, even on your own terms, to be more loving in the way that you live. If you can do these things, if we can do these things together to aim to be always a little more holy than we used to be and a little more loving than we used to be, then everything else comes naturally. All the gifts, the callings, the direction in our life, the ministry, everything is just an expression of these two things. And if we do these things in this church, we'll be preparing ourselves for the day when we are standing in the presence of the Lord together. And if we do these things really well in this church, when that day comes, we might barely notice. So let's pray. Father God, for each of us who know you, there's someone who will stand in your presence one day and see us individually as a source of their glory and their joy. We thank you for the saints that you put in our lives that steered us to really come to know you so that we could one day begin to guide others likewise. We ask you for the courage to share the gospel with those who don't know it and to study it with those who want to know it more. We ask that you would help us live lives more worthy of that gospel and a little holier each day. We ask that you would increase our capacity to love and do that day by day. And Father, we ask that you convict our hearts of what we must do better and to hold us accountable to our resolution and hold us accountable through the movement of your spirit and the encouragement of your people. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ.